Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra, chapter 10, verses 1 through 17. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is a hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all, the, all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Elishib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water. For he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited. And he himself banned from the congregation of exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra, the priest, stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord and the God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Ashahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshalam and Shabbatai, the Levites supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra, the priest, selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I am the lead pastor here. 
And uh, I do want to, first off, just publicly thank the elders for giving me a sabbatical this summer. Not only giving me a sabbatical, but making me take the sabbatical. Because about three weeks ago, they've been planning it, we've been talking about it, and I I just said, guys, I can't do it. I love my job. I love preaching. I get to do this. And we're in a crazy season right now with relaunching missional communities and looking for buildings. And I was like, I can't, I can't stop working right now. And they're like, you're going to stop working right now in about three weeks. <laughs> and they just said, you need to take the sabbatical. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. Um, and as Rob shared, I, by the grace of God, I am not at the point of burnout. This is a proactive sabbatical meant to give me the space to do some soul work and rest with God to prepare me for the next five years of gospel ministry. The last time I've had that kind of time out of the pulpit was 12 years ago when my family and I moved to Omaha to do a church planting residency. And that time, if you don't know this, since I have been 18 years old, I've been preaching nearly every single week, sometimes multiple times. And I am a radical reader. I consume a lot of information. I read around 70 theological books a year. Um, I I read a few fiction books, but I usually don't have time for that stuff. I I, I read Bible stuff most of the time. But I'm a voracious reader, and I'm a voracious consumer, but when I eat something, I want to share it, right? And so that's how my my sermons come out, that I'm, you know, the study and all the work I do, I eat, 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 and then I'll share it, I share it, share it, share it. Well, that's kind of like eating a, like, it's like kind of like Michael Phelps. He ate a 5,000 calorie diet, but he used all that stuff up in his training, right? He used, that's why he was so lean all the time, right? And so when, as I'm learning and, and eating and, and taking on all this food, I'm sharing and I'm sharing and I'm sharing it. For the first time in my life, 12 years ago, when I took plate, when I went to, did this church planning residency, I wasn't giving out. I just could sit, read, study, and I grew. And my heart expanded and God gave me the vision for this church and I came back and planted this church and we've executed that vision now for, for 11 years. Well, I'm praying that God would use this season, this three months, in the same way. That he would just fill me up. He would pack me full. I'd get real spiritually fat in a good way. In a good way. And then I could come back, come back ready to, to, to do ministry for this next five years. Because this next season, here's what God's been speaking to me about and, and speaking to the elders about. We believe that God is calling this church to advance the gospel in our community and in the next generation. That's our vision, to move forward, to advance the gospel and take more ground for Jesus in our community and in the next generation, so and in our kids. To that end, the elders are calling all of us to pray, fast, and give towards a new building where our families can worship God under one roof that would act as a strategic base for reaching our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's our mission. Okay, our vision is to advance the gospel in our community in the next generation, and our mission is has got like a two pronged approach. Here are these two objectives: one, to find a building where our families can worship God under one roof. Now, you can look around here and say, "Hey, there's there's plenty of seats. Why do we need a building?" Well, there's plenty of seats because we have two services for one, and there's plenty of seats here because we have about fifty of our. People, 50 of our kids down in other under under other different roofs, right? Down the way down there, we have two buildings that house our kids, and we have another building that houses our youth ministry. Okay? So we're spread out over here. 
So we want to have a place where all of our families can worship God under one roof. We need more space for that to happen. We would also like a foyer. Like, I know we call that the foyer, but it's really a hallway, okay? We would like a foyer where we could actually hang out and talk and fellowship with one another that doesn't just feel like, if you get caught in, you know, feels like cattle moving in one direction, right? You get, you step in there, boom, you get take. I guess I'm leaving, right? You get taken out immediately. We'd like to have a place where that we could actually hang out and enjoy one another. Um, we also want adequate kids and youth space all under one roof. So that's the first one, to get us all under one roof. Second mission, second goal is we want a building to be a strategic base for reaching our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a multi-generational, long-term vision of our church, of changing this city and this quad cities for Jesus. That means it's, if it's going to be a strategic base, it needs to be centrally located in a decent part of town with plenty of parking. I know there's little churches in, in, in way out in West Davenport and, and different places that are come, come available right now, but that would not be a strategic base for us. We want a strategic base, and then once we have a strategic base, we can plant churches wherever the Lord leads us around the Quad Cities and beyond. To accomplish this, we've got a, a building fund that we're kind of launching, a building campaign that we're launching. Phase one, our goal, people are wanting details. Our goal is to raise $500,000 in the next year. That half a million dollars is meant to either help us buy the building or remodeling costs if we buy the building. More than likely, the, a building will cost more than that. Now, towards that end, we already have one family who has given a matching pledge of $100,000 towards this goal. So that what that means is as we bring in $100,000, they will match that, okay? They're gonna match that dollar for dollar up to $100,000. So praise God for that. So that is, you're gonna be hearing a lot more about that. Um, I just wanted to get it out before I go on sabbatical and you guys can be giving towards that. Many of you are, are already giving towards that, um, that matching pledge, and we just want to uh, thank you for that. Now, I believe it's no accident that God has had us in the book of Ezra all this year. I had planned on preaching through Nehemiah, but as I began my study, I learned that Ezra and Nehemiah had actually been one book with two parts, the words of Ezra and the words of Nehemiah. There was the story of the Israelite exiles returning from Babylon to Jerusalem, to renew the city for the glory of God. I was like, this is our mission. This is what God's called us to do. I didn't know about this. I knew about the Nehemiah side. I didn't really understand the Ezra side very well. I had read the book many times over, but I'd never studied it in depth and I'd never heard anyone preach on it. So when I started studying this, I realized, okay, I definitely need to preach through the book of Ezra. Well, one of the lessons that we have been learning through this book is that the church is a people. We've always said that around here. The church is the people. But... The, the church, the people needs a place to worship God together. You can be a people, but if you don't have a place to gather, didn't we learn that in the pandemic, right? I almost get PTSD when I look at that little white tent out there, <laughs> right? I'm like, ah, no, I remember worshiping God in the rain when it was 30 degrees, right? We had 350 people worshiping God in the sunshine in the next week, 78, <laughs> right? It was brutal. I remember that. Right? The, the church is the people, but the people also need a place to gather. They need a strategic base where the praises of God can ring out into a city. 
where the gospel can be preached, the forgiveness of sins declared, where people can be forgiven and filled with the Holy Spirit and then changed in such a way, when they come to the gathering, they're changed in such a way that now they're sent out as missionaries, radically different than the way what they were before, to renew the city. Now we are all, as Christians, members of the body of Christ. But we only function as that body as we are gathered together, worshiping and serving the Lord together. To use the Apostle Paul's analogy, a finger in the body of Christ can only fulfill its purpose if it is vitally connected and together with the rest of the body. So it's our desire here to follow the book of Ezra's example and to pray fast, and give towards a new building where our families can worship God under one roof that would act as a strategic base for reaching our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're moving into this season now as a church. Now, I'm going to get to our text this morning. I want you to, I just wanted to fill you in all that information. I want to pray for us. I want you to pray with me. We're going to ask God to change us, to speak to us through his word this morning. Gracious Father, we thank you for being a God that moves first, a God that comes near to us first, that a God that reveals himself to us, that you don't want us just struggling to figure out life on our own, struggling to figure out how are we to get to know you, how are we to understand you, how are, to be, we, how are we to be saved. You came and revealed that to us through scripture. So we thank you for it. I pray this morning that you'd help me rightly divide, rightly teach the word of God. He would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. It would be all of you and none of me. That your people would hear your voice. That you would keep me from error. And they would be able to, your people would be able to um, understand where I speak wrong, where I, where I speak in error, and where you speak ultimate truth. Because you never lie and you never deceive. And you are everything, every word that you speak is true. And so I pray that you'd help me, anoint me for this purpose. That you'd bring glory to yourself. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And amen. All right, if you can open up your Bibles with me this morning to Ezra. We're in Ezra chapter 10. Now, if you weren't with us last week and you haven't listened to the sermon online, I'm just going to say you missed a heater, okay? God confronted his people. He confronted their worldliness through Ezra the priest. Now, the people's worldliness in chapter 9 was being evidenced by them intermarrying with people who worshipped other gods. Remember, it was the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Now, we learned last week from chapter 9 that this was not a condemnation of interracial or international marriage. Rather, it was a condemnation of marrying anyone outside of what we would call the Christian faith. They were strictly commanded not to marry outside their faith. And they had disobeyed God in that and done it anyways. This was an example of what scripture calls high-handed sin. Sin done knowingly and purposefully in defiance of God's revealed command. So Numbers 15 and Hebrews 10 both talk about this high-handed sin. It's as if you're saying to God, do something, I dare you. Yes, I know it's wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. High-handed sin. Both the Old and New Testaments agree that high-handed, willful rebellion against God reviles the Lord 
despises his word, breaks his commandments, tramples on the blood of our Savior, and outrages the spirit of grace. The only appropriate response to high-handed sin is grief, brokenness, and repentance. Well, last week in chapter 9, we saw Ezra, the priest's personal grief, we saw his personal shame, and we saw his honest confession to the Lord. He sat down appalled at the people's sin, he pulled out his beard, he ripped his clothes, he confessed the people's sin in solidarity with them without any attempt at all to justify or excuse them away. And then he, he threw all of them. He put place all the people solely on the mercy of God. And he ended it like this. He said, quote, in a prayer, Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Now, I believe that many of us were deeply convicted by last week's sermon. I know I was. God used his word to rebuke me and convict me during the week of my own worldliness, and that conviction brought about a divine hatred for my sin in my heart, and it was a godly grief meant to lead me to repentance. And it was good last week to be able to confess my sins to God and hear once again his pardoning voice and partake of the Lord's Supper together, where we proclaim Jesus's victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. But here's what we see this week. God does not want us to stop there. There's, here's how I'm going to say it. There's more to repentance than acknowledging your sin, hating your sin, and confessing your sin to God and asking for forgiveness. Okay? Our reader this morning said this in, when we were in the, in the um, confession of sin. He said, repentance is a change in direction. So here's, we're living our life one direction, we're confronted by the word of God. We realize that we're in sin. We're to acknowledge it. We're to hate our sin. We're to confess our sin to God and ask for forgiveness. But here's the deal. Repentance is a change in direction. Now I'm walking this way. Too many people claim to be Christians. They are confronted in their sin by something from the word of God. They confess it. They ask for forgiveness and they keep doing the same thing. Keep moving in the same direction. That is not repentance. That is acknowledging your sin, that is confessing your sin, and that is continuing on in the same direction in your sin. John the Baptist said it this way. He said, quote, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. To repent includes a change in direction, a turning around. Let me give you an example. God told his people in Exodus 22 that if a person was caught stealing, they must Pay, they couldn't just apologize and say, I'm sorry, right? But they had to pay full restitution to the person they stole from. God said it like this in the New Testament through Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. He said, quote, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So here's what repentance looks like for a thief. He gets an honest job. He puts in an honest day's work so that he can pay back what he stole and be generous with his hard-earned money. Repentance isn't 
over until he is being generous with his own money. So before he was a person who stole from others, now he needs to become a person who gives freely to others. Do you see that? That's a change in direction, right? Not, yes, I I stopped stealing. I no longer steal, but I still got that person's money in my bank account, right? No, you need to 180, 180 degree turn. Now here's the question we're gonna ask today. What does repentance look like for people who have intermarried? What does repentance look like for people who have married pagans, people who have married people that worship other gods? What does repentance look like? Well, let's see. Ezra chapter 10. Let's read verses one through three first here. Now listen, I'm just gonna warn you right away. This is going to sound very strange to our modern ears, okay? Our Christian ears who haven't been taught the fullness of the word of God. Let's start reading. Chapter 10, verse one. While Ezra prayed and made confession, see, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. This is contrition. So we see him confessing and he's seriously sorry over the people's sin. He has a hatred for the sin. A very great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him out of Israel. All right, so here's what's going on. The people are seeing their brand new pastor weeping, pulling his beard out, you know, beating his chest, confessing his sin, right? And the people start gathering. Did you see the new pastor? Did you see the new pastor? This guy's like serious about sin. This guy's like serious about sin. Let's go. And they're going, and now he's proclaiming the word of God, and he's praying before, praying to God for them, and now they start weeping over this, their sin, right? So his repentance catches on. His grief Catches on. Him taking sin seriously catches on. Keep reading. For the people wept bitterly. So now they're grieving over their sin. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. So here's what we need to see. Somebody else in the, I'm going to use the church. Somebody else in the church comes up to Ezra. Ezra's pulling his beard out. Ezra's freaking out. And someone comes up and goes, whoa, bro, don't freak out. We, we know what we can do here. We have something we can do. I have an idea. I have an idea what we can do. Look what it is. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. I love this. Ezra's so caught up in his grief and repentance, somebody else has to come and go, hey, hey there's still hope, Ezra. Ezra's pulling his beard out. There's hope, Ezra. Well, what's the hope? We've sinned against God. What's the hope? We deserve his wrath. What's the hope? Keep reading. Verse three. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord, of the Lord, And of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. You need to hear what he just said. God says to everyone who married outside the faith that they must divorce their pagan wife and send away any children that have been conceived in that union. 
Happy Mother's Day. Listen, this is the worst Mother's Day text in history. I did not plan this. I promise. Now, to many of us, that probably sounds harsh, uncaring, unkind, unnecessary. But I'm going to push back on that, and I'm going to challenge you. Listen, any time, any time that you are confronted with the word of God and your immediate reaction is, that's weird, that's off, that's stupid, that's silly, that's your own worldliness talking. Anytime you read the word of God and think that's stupid or that's silly or that seems wrong, that is you. Listen, bringing your current modern or postmodern presuppositions, your current cultural perceptions about right and wrong and judging God's word based upon your own standards. Instead, we should say, Lord, help me understand what's going on here. I know you are holy, righteous, and good, and incapable of evil. I know you're kind in all your ways, and your ways are higher than my ways, and your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. So God, show me how to rightly handle the word of truth here, how to rightly understand it and apply it to my life. Listen, every Christian should have a settled disposition to rightly understand the word of God and then to believe and obey everything in it for the rest of their life. If the Bible says it, I believe it and I will obey it, period. We should have a settled disposition about the word of God. Now, stay with me, okay? I know many of you are tempted to shut off right there. Divorce their wives, Whoa. right? Stay with me. Keep reading. Verse four. <clears throat> Arise. For, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. So they're encouraging. Get up. We're going to have to make this happen. Do it. Then Ezra arose and made the, made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as has been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from them before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehonanan, son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. All right, so here's what's being proposed. He, we're caught in our sin. What is our way out? Here's our way out of sin. We must renew our covenant with God and repent of our sin and repentance looks like in this situation divorcing your wife and sending any kids that you had with her away. Now, this is important. He said this, they were to divorce their wife according to the law. According to the law. That means these marriages were all the ones that we're talking about here are unlawful marriages. God's law expressly forbade them. So they were not to just say, well, that, that's just, hey, you know what? I know we married a pagan, but you know, that's water under the bridge. Now that we're married, I guess we should just keep sinning against God by allowing idol worship in our home. No, 
They were to repent and send them away. Now think of it like this. If a man marries his sister and comes to faith, what should they do? Now you go, that's silly. Why is that silly? Why is it silly? Love is love. Oh, it, it's, it's wrong because the law of God condemns it. That's why. Right? Love isn't love. There's lawful love and unlawful love. That's unlawful love. So if a man marries, if a man marries his sister and they come to faith, guess what they should do? Get a divorce. That's what they should do. If two men get married and one of them or both of them come to faith, what should they do? They should get a divorce because it's a union that is expressly forbidden by God's law. God invented marriage. God sets the rules. Back to verse 7. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Okay, you know what happens here? This is not just a priest command. This is not just a preacher preaching something. This is something that goes out and the civil governing authorities grab onto it and make a law out of it. The civil magistrates were making this proclamation and putting the full weight of the law behind it. Now why? Why is the government getting involved in people's marriages? Let me say it quickly like this. Personal righteousness, personal morality, personal responsibility is the bedrock of any society. If individuals aren't faithful and responsible citizens, there is really no hope for society. And marriage is the primary institution that faithfulness is displayed. Your personal morality is displayed in your marriage as you remain faithful to your God-honoring spouse. Marriage is the primary institution where children are raised and they're taught what responsibility and godliness and morality look like in the real world. Therefore, if a marriage is compromised by faithless people, acting sinfully, worshiping other gods, the whole society is actually at risk of being contaminated. Now, this goes against our 21st century minds and understanding of what marriage is. We think of marriage as a private matter that only involves two people, and what they do behind closed doors is their business. That is simply not true. As the marriage goes, so goes the family. As the family goes, so goes the city, so goes the country, so goes the world. This is a national issue. So they sent out this proclamation. Everybody's got to gather before Ezra, and you're going to have to bring your Pagan wife, you're gonna send, and you're going to have to send them away. Verse 9. See how the people respond. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. So they did it. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. Now, why do they add that detail? Here's why they add that detail. The way we do our calendar, it was December. It was December. Okay? Let's keep reading. 
And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Okay, think about this. You want me to... I I married this woman. We've had kids. You want... I have to send her away now? I have to divorce her? Now they're... and. So they're trembling because of the matter and because it's December and raining. Can you imagine this scene? This is how serious this is. They're out there standing in the rain, waiting, all right? It's an intense scene. Verse 10, and Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith. Do you see that? You have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. So here's the deal. Your personal lack of faith is damaging the whole country. You're putting the whole country at risk. Keep going. And so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession. Remember? Confess it to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Repentance. And do his will. Don't just confess. Do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain, and we cannot stand in the open. So here, they're requesting a concession. They're like, it's freezing out here. This is a serious issue. Will you give us some time to think about it? And can we get out of the rain? Right? And this is what, they, this is what happens. Nor is this a task for one day or two. So it's not a simple decision. For we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Our sin is piled up to our head and it's got all kind of implications for our family. Which children do I send away? Do I, I, you know, does everyone send their wife away? What's, What's going on? My daughter became a Christian. Do I send her away? Because she's became a Christian. Yes, she was a pagan, but now she's not. My wife was a pagan when I married her, but guess what? She got saved. Do I send her away? There's a lot of complications. There's a lot of extenuating circumstances to this matter. We need time to think about it. Verse 14. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. So we need representatives here. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times and with them the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. So here's here's what they're presenting. We want to go before judges, civil magistrates, and elders. We want to present our case and we want you, the pastors, to judge us. Yep, you have to send her away. No, you don't have to send her away. See, this was not some kind of rash, emotional decision. The people who had taken foreign wives were to be brought before the elders and the judges so that the elders and the judges could hear their cases and take the necessary time to hear all of the extenuating circumstances and make their decisions according to the law of God, according to the scriptures. Verses 16 and 17 show us, look at this. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to examine the matter. Okay, so this begins 
in the, in the 10th month and it ends in the first month. What we're, what we're learning here is, is that this was a three-month process. This was a three-month process of judging and separating the house of Israel. Here's what's going on. And I want you to see this. This is important. This is vital here. We learned last week that any foreign person who would repent and turn away from their pagan false gods and worship the one and only true God would be accepted into the worshiping community. Zipporah repented of her Hittite idolatry and lawfully married Moses. Rahab repented as a Moabite and lawfully married Salmon. Ruth repented of her Canaanite worship and lawfully married Boaz. So here's what's going on. We need to see this. Ezra and the people are drawing a line in the sand. And they're saying, choose ye this day whom you will serve. Any woman who is willing to repent and worship God would not be sent away. God is not attempting here to somehow break up happy homes. What he's doing is preventing future tragedy. He's cutting out the cancer before it spreads and kills everyone. Any woman who refused to hear the word of God and repent and embrace the faith of Israel was a woman who was so set in her idolatry, she was actually an evangelist for paganism. Hear that. Remember, evangelism works both ways. We want to evangelize the world, but the world is also seeking to evangelize us and our kids. Now we see this as kind of crazy here. We see this as, whoa, I can't believe God's getting involved in something so personal and something so individual in these homes and and making people divorce someone. But they say God's people here could not allow a pagan evangelist to remain in their home attempting to lead their own children and the neighbors astray into idolatry. This would be to allow high-handed sin to remain in your own home. Now listen, we talked about last week this a young Christian man who says, you know what, it doesn't really matter if I marry inside my faith or I date inside my faith and he starts dating non-Christians because it doesn't really matter. And we talked about many times because they're not a Christian, they're gonna, that woman will start, she'll sleep with you and you can sin sexually. And then guess what? You can get her pregnant. That has implications. And here's the deal, young Christian man, in this world right now, if she's a secular woman and she believes in the idolatry of secularism right now and feminism right now that basically says whatever a man can do, I should be able to do. And so I should be able to be in control of my body and have no repercussions of my own sin. That I should be able to have, I want to keep skinny. I want my body to look the same way it always has. I want to have the same career opportunities. I don't want a child in my stomach to interrupt my plans in life. And guess what, young Christian man, who now you've sinned with a pagan and now you've conceived in her womb, you have no authority over that baby in her womb. She can kill it without your permission. 
She can sacrifice it just like the Canaanites would sacrifice their own children to Molech. She can sacrifice that child in her womb, your child in her womb, to her false god. All the while posting on Facebook about how it's a good. If there is no God, first off, there is no human rights. You're an evolved animal, and animals do what animals want to do. Rights come from God, and we do not have autonomy over ourselves. Autonomy means auto, self, nomos, law, self-law. We have no law over ourselves. Not only that, that baby in the womb is a different person from you with different DNA. My body, my choice, that is not the argument. We don't, yeah, you have a body, you have a choice. There's another body in there that also has a choice and we're standing up for that choice. See, we think of, oh, what's the big deal about marrying different religions? It's not a big deal, we're all cool these days. No, we're not. You worship God or you worship the devil, that's it. And the devil likes sacrificing children. Devil, the, the devil wants people to destroy their future. So, the people had to take their sin seriously and not just confess it, but repent. And repentance looked like divorce in the situation. Now, He makes a, okay, I'm going to go, I need to go to 1 Corinthians 7 really quick because I, I want you to see something here. That's what obedience required then. Paul talks about this similar situation in 1 Corinthians 7, but it's got a little bit different conclusion. And this is going to take you to put your Bible hats on and do some hard thinking with me, okay? So we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 7, and I want to read something to you. Verses 12 through 16. To the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Okay, once you see something. Two people get married, both pagans, and not, both unbelievers. One of them comes to faith, okay? Do I have to divorce her and send her away like they did in Ezra? No. Why? Well, keep reading. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever. Now, we are told specifically not to marry unbelievers. This is after you come to faith. You, you already married, and now you come to faith, and you find yourself in an unequally yoked marriage. Keep reading. And he consents to live with her. She should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? All right. So I come to faith. My wife does not. I don't have to leave. I don't have to divorce her. I don't have to send her away. If she wants to stay with me, I stay with her. If she wants to leave me, I let her go. What has changed from Ezra to 1 Corinthians? Now, this is going to take some heavy thinking that I need you to go with. We saw in this text, the people made a covenant with God. A covenant is more than a contract. 
It is a commitment and a contract with God that's sovereignly administered. Here, here, here's, here's what they do. Ultimately, God has only made two covenants. A covenant of works and a covenant of grace. Now, I, I need to stay with me here. In the Garden of Eden, God made a covenant of works with Adam. He said, you can eat of any tree in the garden, just don't eat from that one tree. If you eat that tree, you will surely die. Here's the covenant, guys. Covenant of works. Obey me perfectly or you die. That's the covenant. Obey me perfectly or you die. Adam failed, right? That covenant was made in history. Adam failed and broke it. He deserved death, but he didn't die right away. Why? Because, this is interesting, all the way back in eternity past, God himself, God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. One essence, three distinct per people, persons. Here's what, here's what God did in eternity past. Before he made the covenant of works, he said, the Father wrote this plan and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to create everything there is. We're going to create human beings. We're going to give them the covenant of works. They're going to fail it. What are we going to do? Then the second member of the Trinity, he's going to enter into humanity at some point and obey the covenant of works perfectly in their place. But what he's also going to do is take the punishment, the curse of the disobeying the covenant for the people in their place as their representative. He's going to stand before the throne of God and take the punishment that they deserve. And then they will be accepted into our family and, and they'll be saved and they'll get eternal life. Now, here's what's interesting. Covenant of works, covenant of grace. But the covenant of grace, that was made in eternity past. But the covenant of grace, when it came to earth, came as a seed that eventually grew up into a mighty tree. Here's the seed. When Adam and Eve sinned, he killed an animal in their place. That animal took the wrath of God for them. He then said, one day someone's going to come and, the, and, and, and he's, he's gonna be a son of man and he's gonna crush the head of the serpent, Satan. And when he crushes the head of the certain serpent, the serpent's gonna bite his heel and wound him. That's the, that's the covenant of grace in a seed form. Then if you follow it, 11 chapters later or something, God makes a covenant with Noah. And he says, I'll never judge the earth like that again. I'll never flood the earth like that again. I'll give you a rainbow to prove my covenant to you. That's the, the seed grows up a little bit. Then you have a covenant with the covenant with Abraham. It grows up a little bit taller. Now it includes all the nations of the world and the people are gonna spread around the world. Then you have, it goes up from there to Moses. And with Moses, now you have the law. And the, the, we're seeing a little bit more of of the covenant and the stipulations of the covenant and the promises of the covenant. Then you got the Davidic covenant, David, and you see the kingdom actually on this earth, right? You see all this stuff going on. And then we get to Jesus and he brings the new covenant, the covenant in his blood. Now, this is what, I needed, what we need to see. The new covenant does not wipe out all of these covenants. It's just the fulfillment of all these covenants. These covenants were growing up into maturity, okay? with Jesus Christ. And so one of the things that the I'm going to say one of the things that the new covenant accomplished was that Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live, obeyed the de, obeyed the law perfectly, then he died the death that we deserve, then he resurrected to the resurrected proving that he was who he said he was, ascended to the right hand of God and listen, sent the Holy Spirit. 
then the Holy, now under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and gives us a new heart that causes us to want to obey God. Here's what we need to see. During Ezra's day, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They had a little bitty covenant picture, a little bitty covenant understanding. And so if, you, if you've got a, a believer and an unbeliever in one home, the evangelism goes both ways. Nobody's got the Holy Spirit, right? It's very easy to lose your salvation in your mind in that way. You can be influenced negatively in that way. But now under the new covenant, the covenant has grown up and it's a fully formed tree, right? And now the Holy Spirit's in us, giving us a new heart. And so I am less likely to be turned away if my wife is an unbeliever. The potency of the new covenant is stronger than the old covenant. Do you see that? We now have the Holy Spirit inside of us. So now we say, if that person wants to leave, let him go. This process here in Ezra was meant to call people to repentance. It's meant to separate the believers from the unbelievers. Anyone who was unwilling to repent was being sent away. Paul tells the Corinthians, under the new covenant, you don't have to send them away, but if they want to leave, let them go. Now listen, the calling for us is still the same. We are called to be, quote, God's race, God's royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, and we are meant to bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. So our lives should look different from unbelievers. Here's the question for us this morning. When you're reading God's word or you're hearing God's word preached and it uncovers some worldliness in you, some area in your heart of compromise, what do you do? The answer, friends, is to repent and bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. Here's how Jesus says it. Now listen, this is interesting. So you've got people standing before their preacher and he's separating them, believer from unbeliever. He's examining each case. Did she convert? No? Okay, she's got to go. Pleading with them. Be converted. Be converted. Do you want to stay with your family? Do you want to serve the true living God? Be converted. And the ones who say, no, I don't want it. I want to worship my Canaanite God. I want, to, I want my ways. All right, be gone. This scene will be replayed. This scene gets replayed every Sunday morning in here, and it, gets, it will get replayed on the final day. Here's how Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is the second return. This is the return of Christ, the second return. This is the return of Christ. Second coming of Christ. He's talking about here. And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is interesting now. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now this is interesting because then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty or give you drink? And my whole life, I don't think I ever actually gave food to you, Jesus. So what do you mean by that? He says this. And when did we see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So as you served the poor and as you served children, as you served the least people, you were doing it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Those on his left are also confused. They will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not minister to you? Basically, they're saying, if, if I would have saw you, Jesus, if I you would have revealed yourself to me perfectly, then I would have believed in you. I would have served you. I would have done these things. That's what Jesus says. Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. You say, that sounds like works-based salvation. No. Salvation, the covenant of grace, is entirely grace. A hundred percent, all the way through grace. Jesus, first off, the Father planned it. Jesus lived for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. Jesus ascended to heaven for you. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit for you. Jesus saved you. It's 100% Jesus. It has nothing to do with you. The only thing you bring into your salvation is the sin that makes your salvation necessary. It's all done by Jesus. But here's what we need to see in Matthew right here. If Jesus has saved you, you will bear fruit that shows Jesus has given you a new heart. Think about it. If you, if I know I was spiritually and morally bankrupt when God saved me, I had nothing to offer him but my sin, and he gave me his mercy and righteousness, when I eventually get some things in my hands, some money and some financials, I see that coming from the hand of God. Of course I want to give it away to the least of these. I was the least of these, and he saved me. So of course I want to give stuff away. If I see that I was a slave and prisoner of sin and Jesus alone set me, free, set me free, of course I want to visit those in prison and tell them about the one who can set them free as well. In other words, people who recognize the undeserved one-way grace of God towards them will be people who show that kind of grace to others. They will bear fruit in keeping with their repentance. Repentance. 
Now listen, ultimately, there are only two ways to be saved. One, the covenant of works. Obey the law of God perfectly and never sin against God, and you can make your way in. Every other religion in the world is under the covenant of works. Christianity is the only religion that offers the covenant of grace. The God who made the covenant fulfilled the covenant, kept the covenant, obeyed the covenant, took the punishment of the covenant so that we could have the blessings of the covenant. That's why it's Jesus' way or hell. No other God did that. No other God lived for you and died for you and sent the Spirit for you. That's why there's no way outside of Jesus that you can be saved. And if you believe that, you'll care for the poor. If you believe that, you care for those in prison. If you believe that, you'll bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for your covenant that you are a covenant-keeping God. You are faithful. You are God and you cannot lie. I pray right now you are giving people in this room faith to believe. They would turn from the covenant of works and they turn to the covenant of grace. They turn from their own works to grace. Would you save them even now? Father God, those of us who are living in sin, would you bring a big spotlight on that sin? Would you search out the dark corners of our heart? Would we be grieved? Would we hate it? Would we confess it? And would we repent? Would we turn and bear fruit in keeping with our repentance? Jesus, it's a gift to come to your table this morning as a baptized, repentant believer to take up the bread that is your body that was broken for us and the cup, which is the cup of the new covenant that you fulfilled for us. And so every time we eat this together, we proclaim your death and your victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And so we eat this together with other believers in faith. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.